Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Never Stay Dead. We are continuing our planetary series, and uh, I am Damien, and I am joined by my good buddy, Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello. So uh, we're going to be very predictable for a dozen or more episodes. You can just expect more planetary. Which isn't a bad thing at all. Right. And this time we read chapter or issues four and five. Yeah. It, At least on uh, on issue four, it says chapter four, right? On yeah, the it leans on that chapter idea like it's all part of a book, but each issue feels very self-contained. So I don't think it's a good use of that. Although I would say, I mean, we can discuss it more as we get into it, but I would say the format has shifted like the last two issues i thought okay now i know what the format of this comic is and in these two issues it feels a little different um, particularly issue five for me but these issues also feel closer to each other whereas two and three felt closer to each other so ah that's interesting yeah they're they just accidentally were reviewing things that pair together a bit a bit they also pair closer to issue one in a way. Yes, very directly in five. Yeah. So not that we get a lot of answers, but we get a feeling of we're closing in on a few things a little bit in a way. And I had read in our last episode, I read a letter where someone said, you know, good thing you're not going to be part of the Wildstorm universe. And they said, oh, yes, we are going to be part of the Wildstorm universe. Mm. And we start to see that in these two issues, I think. If vaguely, yes. I sort of sensed it. Issue four is called Strange Harbors. It has this very evocative, you know, um, what's the right word? Super science fiction pulp looking cover. I was, before we started recording, I was struggling. I was saying there's something about this cover that looks very specific. Like I've seen this magazine that they're imitating, but I don't know which one it is. And it's been so long. Uh, and I couldn't find anything on the web about it in my cursory look. In this kind of fancy lettering, it says Planetary Magazine, a Wildstorm publishing, a Wildstorm publication, Strange Harbors, a complete comic, comic story by Warren Ellis, illustrated by John Cassidy. Other contributors... Laura Dupay, Al Fuchs, Ed Roeder, and John Lehman. And we know John Lehman, who's now famous as, or well-known as a writer, was the editor. Um, so it just strikes me, now, I mean, I was struggling with this, but f for those who kind of know, this is similar to what you would see in later sci-fi pulps. After most pulps had kind of disappeared, they would often say, you know, complete in this issue a novella or novel by... Robert Heinlein or Isaac Asimov or whomever. So it kind of evokes that kind of um, pulp feeling, I think. And uh, we see a guy who's, who's a stranger to us in a cape and with circuitry all over his clothes and big boots that go up to his hip and a sash and all of that very, um, I don't know, retro, retro future looking, I guess. Yeah. I'm not going to try to cover the plot in summary the way i did last time but yeah let's so let's just go blow by blow with it sure um shouldn't take too long 
the, the story opens up. It starts with a guy talking about something strange that happened. It was like Satan farted. Mm-hmm. And it apparently a building has either collapsed or erupted. I wasn't quite sure the way it was wor- worded. Right. So it was a giant explosion and it came from beneath, thus the Satan imagery. This is very Warren Ellis um, trying to take what would be a major event that others would be talking about a certain way and inserting a surrealist profanity into it to try to like grab you very much. Totally like this is like the echoes of Transmet. And right, the the jaded kind of way of explaining things and stuff. Right. And you know, it's uh And the building was vaporized, so there's little or no rubble. Um and I don't think it's ever f- and we can kind of guess how it, that might have happened. And it turns out that there's someone who just is in the building next door who, as far as we know, is just a witness who is uh, sort of telling this person who works for another company what happened. And I guess it, maybe it was their building that exploded or vaporized. I'm not. Well, he he was close by. He was a witness. But it's the Hark Corporation. I think what's important is that we know this happens and our team is here. They were planning on returning close to when it happened, but they didn't see it happen themselves. This idea, because a big idea in this comic that we'll see coming up quickly is that snow in particular is complaining about them always kind of showing up after the fact rather than dealing with things as they happen. True. And, but this, this wilder person who's interviewing this guy in this building is nothing to do with planetary. Right. He's an agent of the Hark Corporation. Right. And Hark is their Fu Manchu uh, substitute from issue one. Yes. And later we learn that he's dead, but his daughter runs the company. Mm -hmm. And I think Fu Manchu would have an evil daughter who would seduce men and stuff back in the very tasteless pulps that he once appeared in. Are you familiar with the character Fu Manchu? I am, yes. I uh, studied him extensively for uh, Asian history in college. Oh, really? Wow. Then maybe yeah. you know more than I do. I mean, not a ton. I mean, it was cursory and overglance. If you actually read the stuff, I didn't. Get, it, I wasn't able to get my hands on in college. Um, it's you're right. That's there, but I think this theme of the idea that things happen and the people that know about it or how to deal with it come in after. Because they're globetrotting, and they're not there, but the locals see it, but the locals won't have the context to fully understand it, or they might not mention certain details. And so that was kind of playing through my head this entire time for the way it's set up. So I believe that's very intentional. True. But but the opening sequence of the of the book is not about those people. Right. We later learn they are they are dealing with this vaporized building in their own planetary kind of way. But our hero is reporting back to his boss, Miss Hark, and um, and then he sees a mugging and he decides to interfere and he punches the mugger and then chases after him. And the mugger runs into the site, which is all covered up with tarps, uh, where the building has vaporized. And then that's where things get really weird. He He runs in after the mugger and there's a bunch of people in those white whatchamacallum, uh, clean suits, mm-hmm. plus the three members of Planetary who are not in clean suits. Right. 
and he just continues uh, running across the scene where they're they're unearthing some strange artifact that was been revealed by the explosion, and he just runs right across the artifact and must step on it just the right way and finds himself transported to somewhere else. Right. Which we later learn is a, what would you call it? A shift ship? A, I forget the proper name. It's a, it's, it's a spaceship-like vehicle that travels between universes through the bleed, mm-hmm. which is the term for the space between universes that we know from authority. Mm-hmm. Authority or Storm, does Stormwatch have it too? Yes. A ship that travels well, in the bleed. I forget if Stormwatch has a ship that travels in the bleed or if they deal with it as, I don't think they deal with it as directly as authority, but I could be wrong. Okay. It's I don't, I don't know enough about Wildstorm or, or remember enough. I honestly haven't read a ton of Stormwatch, so that's a little pushing past my boundaries. I just remember reading about the bleed in authority mm. slash Stormwatch comics, and I'm not sure which. Right. So we kind of don't see what happens to him. And we don't even know immediately in this weird place that we see him that it is a spaceship. We learn that a little later. Yeah, it looks like this fantastic kind of Shangri-La place. Right. Yeah, like some kind of Art Nouveau paradise palace or something. Yeah. And then we get a brief bit of the planetary characters complaining about each other and where we learn about Snow complaining... They always come after something happens and they're just observers. It says, uh, do we ever get to see anything when it happens instead of mopping up after or digging it up? Of course, we actually did. They actually did see things when they were happening in the previous issue when with the ghost cop. And then the uh, the building God. Oh, right. And the building God that appeared in front of them. That was pretty big. Right. But literally and figuratively. I guess. But this seemed to me kind of partially, well, he wanted to make continue to make uh, Winter a grumpy character, but also Warren Ellis' acknowledgement that these are, so far his main characters are passive observers of things. Right. I think it's a call to kind of the mystery and the build more so. So in contrast to the last issue, which does make that more interesting and almost kind of a foible in the storytelling this idea that they're going but they're supposed to be archaeologists of the unknown that was the tagline right so they should be digging up things themselves right but then they would only ever be seeing things past so this idea that he wants to see things active is only becoming apparent now and we see this thread carry through into the next issue Mm -hmm. and yeah what I guess I find kind of odd is what we know about Snow is that it was a recluse. And then recently he's kind of stumbled into the world and now he's kind of got this taste and wants more and wants more. Whereas true, true. As much as we assume Janaka is younger than him, at least, even if she's older than she appears, uh, she's been at this, a while and she's much more in the moment so like in this very page we're looking at that we're talking about here the drummer's jumping on this thing and then she says hey don't jump on and she's complaining about having to tell one of her colleagues to not act like a petulant child basically and snow's talking about something grander and she's just here right he's sort of in a sense he wants 
she's usually pretty happy with what they do, right? Mm-hmm. I think in a way, as long as something interesting is happening is her motivation. Now, I just realized looking at it now that uh, the drummer is trying to activate the artifact the way um, Wilder did when he ran across it. Right. And he doesn't succeed. He may or may not have succeeded in sort of calling back uh, Mr. Wilder. I forget his first name. Although I think, in fact, as we learn the story later, that this is exactly when the when the the ship would have wanted to send him back. Right. And it's um, then we we flash forward a little bit. Wilder, we see Wilder in a sick bed, and he has got this huge Z or lightning strike scar going across his torso. Mm-hmm. The way it looks, it's like he's just woken up after being out for a long time. And Doc Brass, the Doc Savage-like character, walks past his doorway with his ridiculously crippled legs, uh, accompanied by a nurse or something. Mm -hmm. And then our three planetary agents enter, and they say, you know, good morning, Mr. Wilder, how are you feeling? And introduce themselves. We met about five days ago in the Hark Building bomb site, though you probably won't remember that too clearly. So he's been out unconscious for five days. Yeah. I guess that's not really important, but... Well, no, I mean, the fact that he's out so long after a trauma like that is interesting. Yeah. It's a play to realism of a sort. And it tells us something major happened to him, I guess. Right. That and the crazy scar. And also, our planetary characters coming him with knowledge and being more collected makes more sense because they've had time to process everything. Right. So then he quite freely tells them the story of what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a lot of storytelling without words, which, you know, luckily, uh, John Cassidy is very good at that. So, um, right. Luckily, Warren Ellis just happened to have who is going to become one of the greatest artists of all time in comics <laughs> on this Wildstorm project. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know who picked him. Did uh, John Lehman pick him? Did Jim Lee, who run the, ran the company, pick him? Or did uh, Warren Ellis? It'd be weird if Jim Lee picked him, I think. Yeah. I mean, I know in more recent times at DC, I'll hear about Jim Lee sort of picking out artists and then asking the artist, who do you want to work with you? as a writer like because jim lee thinks artist first then writer yeah and if you've ever seen jim lee write there's no question as to why (laughs) jesus i I, i'm i'm sure though this was warren ellis generated because we saw the pitch that he wrote and he was already looking like a star writer at this point i think warren ellis i thought was pretty well established at this point transmets behind him at this point right or mostly finished Right, and he had some other, like, big two stuff he had done. Oh, okay. Well, plus he, or is he, had he already done his most famous work on The Authority at the time of these early issues, or is it concurrent? I would have to look. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm thinking they may have thought of him at Wildstorm as kind of their their main big writer. Anyway, however they came together, they're a great team. And uh, John Cassidy is a great storyteller, along with a very cool illustrator. I mean... So we get to see a lot of his cool architectural inventions here. And eventually he starts talking to a disembodied voice, which turns out to be the voice of this ship, that explains that it was from another universe and it was designed to travel 
through the bleed from universe to universe, which I guess is a particularly complicated thing to do. And we get the return of the snowflake, which we've been seeing in most episodes. I don't think we saw it in the uh, the the Monster Island episode, but some variation of it in all the others. Um, so it's explaining the snowflake shape of the multiverse to Mr. Wilder and explains how it has been, um, what should we call it, stranded on Earth, we realize, since the time of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and its crew died. And the crew is actually its fuel and its navigation and all of that somehow. Maybe in a sense it's fueled on human imagination or sentient imagination. I hope I'm not in the fuel department, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why the ship would survive, but the human humanoid, presumably humanoid crew does not. You could interpret this. There's a huge double, or not a single splash page of the spaceship. Uh, crashing down during dinosaur times, one could think that this could be the extinction event of the dinosaurs, the crashing of the spaceship. Right. Yes, I very much took that. And so the and so the spaceship, I keep calling it a spaceship, but it's what a bleed ship or something. Whatever. The spaceship has now been buried under the earth, waiting for someone to step on that stone that so that it can recruit a new crew. So it's been. I think the last dinosaurs were, what, 10 million years ago or something? It's been waiting a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, crocodiles are still around, so, you know. Well, yeah. I don't know if they're directly related to dinosaurs. I think oh, yeah. the closest relative to the dinosaur is the chicken. Well, I mean, I forget if his alligators or crocodiles were around then as well. So it wants to go home, and it wants his help. And I guess he agrees to helping it. I don't really know why, just because it's so wonderful, I guess. I mean, why not? (laughs) And so that is apparently why he has this giant Z on his chest. Well, it's a lightning bolt, because the lightning bolt imagery is present throughout the entire issue. And then he asked them, hey, do you want to go see the ship? Because apparently, you know, the ship was not revealed, just one of its stones that it uses to transport people to it. So I'm not sure where the ship is located. And so then he just turns into the guy from the cover, the sort of uh, retro-futuristic. Right. He reminds me a little bit of, like, people on Krypton or something in some Superman kind of drawing. Not Captain Marvel? Uh. Well, I can see the Captain Marvel comparison, but and there is the uh, lightning bolt on his chest, so that is Captain Marvelish, isn't it? Also, transformation. Also, what the transformation from human to superhero with yeah, right. the The lightning bolt scar on his on his torso starts glowing, and he so he transforms. I don't know if he knew he could do that all along, <laughs> and he says, "Just take my hands." And I guess they all hold his hands. We don't see that part. And now they're in this beautiful interior of the spaceship, which has dolphins and other animals inside and bridges and archways. And it's hard to understand why a spaceship would be like that. Have you not seen Star Trek? You have to transport whales and dolphins all the time. Ah, true. (laughs) No, I mean, why it would be designed like some super futuristic 
Well, it seems like a nature preserve almost, though. It's like a nature preserve slash palace, perhaps. I, I hear you a lot in this issue asking why, like motivations, why is nature here and whatnot. Right. And something that I've been gleaming, particularly through Janaka, is the sense of the reason why anyone is here, the reason anyone's dealing with all of this nonsense is for the sheer sake of wonder. Yes. It's seeking the beautiful, it's seeking the strange, it's seeking the edges. For the sake of doing it, that is the why. There's the famous expression that is used all the time in science fiction, the sense of wonder, that some people just read science fiction for the sense of wonder it gives you. And yeah, Jaquita says, these are the moments I live for. I put up with all the other crap just to get seconds like this. The moments when you know the world's a better place than advertised. And that that may be the entirety of Jaquita's motivation. I mean, we don't know. But it seems very strong aspect with of her that we've seen from the beginning. It's the entirety of the motivation that's been presented to us thus far. It's not saying there can't be any more depth to the character. And I'm sure we'll get there. But for what's on the face, that's what we got. We've kind of been given hint, you know, she has so much power and invulnerability that maybe that makes life seem boring to her, that there aren't things at stake for her the way there are for the average person. Well, anyway, that's one guess as to why she needs this kind of or particularly loves this kind of stimulation. To me, I I don't because I hear this and I hear this with other characters, people questioning motivations. Why would you do this sort of stuff? Yet at the same time, like, I don't know, there's daredevils out there. If you've ever seen any arc of Doctor Who, you know, like once you get sucked in, like, why wouldn't you keep seeking that? Like, once you get a taste of anything like that. Right. You you just would want more. Well, yeah, because. Or you would run home scared and hide under your bed for the next three years, depending on your way of looking at the world. in, In a universe with more possibilities, the sense I get is it's more akin to like wonderlust like what else mm-hmm. is out there it's just curiosity manifesting in another right. form and I, I but your wonderlust could be greater if you're invulnerable because you sure you don't have a sense of risk i can go see you know these uh dangerous animals in africa and stare at them and wonder and not worry that they will be able to tear me from piece to piece or something we we could. I just haven't seen anything in the character torrent anything like that. I mean, that's what keeps me from hang gliding. I would love to go hang gliding, but I've also heard it's like one of the most dangerous things to do. If it flips over, you die. <laughs> well, don't flip then. You know, just go. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I found it odd, actually, that they were there for a while, and then actually they seemed pretty eager to leave, especially winter, I guess. It's just like, ah, we did our job. Let's go home. Oh, winner's the curmudgeon. And oh, and the guy asks if they will help him because he needs to recruit what is it, six other people or a total of six people? Mm-hmm. Back to the Captain Marvel. To be the rest of the crew, the Marvel family of the ship, perhaps, mm-hmm. so that the ship can then go home. And uh, they say, uh, and this is kind of drawn out, and, and eventually Winter has to say, well, what's our answer to this? And they say, well, I'm sorry, but Planetary only has an investigative mandate. And then sort of the finale of the issue 
is where Winter sort of intervenes and says, we will be delighted to provide you with whatever you need. And he is going to, he, he's made the decision that Planetary will help out Mr. Wilder to find the rest of the crew for his new project of helping this alien sentient ship get back home. Which, I don't know. Yeah, that was, and then the issue just kind of ends. And right. what hit me the most about this issue, though, is the drummer only has one moment and then he's just floating in the background. They mentioned that he was recording the information that they saw when they were inside the ship. Right. So he's like the human tricorder, like in Star Trek or something, recording sure. all the information. So that gives a sense that he has more of a role. What what Winter's role is, Jaquita's the muscle. Uh, the drummer is the uh, info guy, either getting info or taking in info. So it's his one of his first moments of doing something not passive, something more active. Right, which is going to tie directly to the next issue. Though, I have to say overall, I think this is my least favorite issue thus far. It felt like it just kind of happened. Well, to me, it was it was the it, it's the issue that least felt like a a self contained short story, mm -hmm. and one of the pleasures of this planetary so far, anyway, has been that sense of well, we do have a continuing story, but the main point of each issue is the short story. Right. We did kind of have the story told at a distance of this ship, but there wasn't a whole lot of information. It felt like. This was the first issue in a whole series about this guy Wilder trying to find a crew for this ship. And maybe, maybe we'll come back to Wilder. Maybe everyone in Planetary will turn out to be part of the crew someday. Oh, I don't oh. think so, but that was a thought that passed through my head. I think we need a few more. So another, well, an interesting thought that popped into my head, uh, maybe because I'm reading a lot of old 70s DC horror and mystery stories right now, is that there's a certain resemblance between these and uh, Phantom Stranger stories. Okay. I don't know if you've read very many of them, but these 70s Jim Aparo-drawn 70s uh, Phantom Stranger stories usually have a story that's happening. The Phantom Stranger kind of shows up mysteriously, somewhat takes action, but not a lot and never explains his motivation or who he is, and then he just goes away. And uh, and he's dressed, I mean, the colors are differently, but, but he isn't dressed that differently from Winter in his oddly archaic zoot suit. <laughs> well, I mean, Phantom Stranger kind of is playing on a lot of the mayu that planetary is playing it as well because planetary is more interested in pulp than it is in superhero lore and phantom stranger is more a boogeyman and pulpish character yeah. than he is really a superhero one he was an interesting throwback in a lot of ways though throwback right. in the 70s so now that feels archaic at least back then in the 70s i think they were trying to take elements of you know, the, the old-fashioned one-and-done mystery stories and try to connect them together a little bit with a mysterious stranger who shows up in each one. Mm. Um, it's like, it's like uh, 
it's almost like Rod Serling showing up in the Twilight Zone, but then taking a slightly more active role in the weird story of the week uh, before he moves on without fully explaining to anyone he meets why he is there. <laughs> right. Which is something that I think can be fun, but like in the recent What If series that was put out by Marvel, instead of just letting each one be its own thing, they felt the need to connect them and then uh, have a larger story. Oh, are you talking about the TV show? Right, where it all came together. Yeah. So in the end, there was kind of a, a purpose in the Watcher showing us all these stories because he was going to gather together all those people. Yeah, what a yeah. boner. I just... Yeah. There was no need for that. Well, it, it, it's that need to, but we may find this in planetary, right? It's this need to pull it all together in the end and uh, say that you've done your Hollywood ending. Well, in planetary, it's implicit from the beginning, right? Uh, and I think there's a need for that because we're following these characters and there's something grander going on. But it's going to be written to me very much in the vein of how I digested a lot of anime where you go through the first half or the first season, it's usually pretty episode by episode, but then you enter the second half or roughly around there. And then things start tying together and it becomes a lot more um, serialized as opposed to episodic. Mm -hmm. And so it's really building the world before we, kind of go for it and have the plot come full bore and I'm not remembering that but at least experienced readers like us even sensed from the very first issue or the second issue that probably guessed that warren ellis is planting seeds that will then pop up in other stories right and by issue five which we're about to segue into that already starts happening right we start mm -hmm. connecting a lot of dots but this issue, a little more subtly, has some dots to that first issue by the reference to Hark. So we now know, if we were paying really close attention, which I'm only doing now that we're doing this podcast, that that genius uh, Chinese or Asian character from the past that we learned about in the first issue had a daughter who he he's passed away and she now has a corporation mm -hmm. that also perhaps investigates odd events in some way perhaps well and we're playing with legacy there. at first i thought it was a reference to tony stark like that he worked and then i realized no that's not what it is because hark was the um was the fu manchu type of character could be a long play i uh i think it's interesting i also have to say overall i prefer this kind of world building to say like a hickman-esque like scatterbrain puzzle plot kind of deal like uh -huh. let it let it be story let it be built let it be mystery but don't make it arcane don't make it errata don't make it trivia make it right a story right hickman i mean well there's been some hickman stuff i really liked I, but he does have the tendency towards it's almost like he's throwing a series of secret folders your way and eventually, you know, after you read all the uh, all the files, you'll start seeing the picture I mean, within the files or something. You know, I said Hickman, but I think really I was thinking Morrison with his Batman run where it was like... Okay. Yeah. I have not read enough of Morrison. I, I, I was just skimming in occasionally on Morrison's Batman run. I have now bought all three omnibuses of his Batman run. And I 
somehow imagine I'm going to have time to read all three omnibuses. I believe that's an omni train at that point. An omni train, yes. I'm I'm not on the omnibus anymore. I'm on the omni train. <laughs> It's it's the slow train to Morrison Land though because it's gonna take me a long time to read. I have that in issues and trades and all scattered up, and there's no clean way to just read through it. I don't think it's a mess. But let's. Uh... Yeah. So I just want before we move on to the next oh. issue, I just wanted to say that I just wanted to point out that Hark thing. So that's the other thing I got out of this issue. Mm-hmm. I'm now looking for. Miss Hark and her organization to show up some more. I'm imagining it will. I, as we said before, we don't remember that much from the first time we read it. And the more I read it, the more I realize I'm not sure how far I got into Planetary before it slowed down and I lost track of it. Well, the other thing that I found interesting about that is Hark is clearly a competing organization. But what right. I don't know yet is if they're competing or if they're adversarial. Right. Or something else. Right. Yeah. Um, does Hark know about Planetary? Good question. It didn't seem like Wilder knows about Planetary, but although he doesn't tell a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So the next issue called Chapter 5. No, it's called The Good Doctor, I believe. The next issue has a cover that looks like it has the classic Doc Savage ripped shirt cover. Um, there's a whole, there's a famous artist who sort of came up with this look for Doc Savage. And uh, I don't know if he had ripped shirts in the books, but he always had a ripped shirt on the covers. And then behind him in the background are just all these years, 1950, 1946, 1948. It's sort of The numbers roughly ascend as you go up. Yes, they roughly ascend. Um, although 1970 is down low, but overall it's like the years drifting past him. And he just has this, I love the the look on his face. I can't really describe it that, um, that John Cassidy gives him. Self-assured. Self-assured, a little removed or something. Mm-hmm. It's like he's off in his own little Zen space or something. And so the whole issue is is a conversation between uh, I keep wanting to call him Doc Savage, between Doc Brass and Winter, interspersed with random or seemingly random pages from different uh, Doc Brass pulp adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, they don't connect specifically, right? And at first it, I thought, oh, is this the next page in the same story every time we saw a pulp page? But it wasn't as far as I could tell. It was just like ripped from different stories. And I don't know the exact number, but I believe there were hundreds of issues, each one a a full novel of uh, Doc Savage in the old days. They talk about Jenny Sparks, who is a major character in, is she in uh, Stormwatch or just Authority? Well, She's in both, right? Yeah, I mean, Authority was in Stormwatch and then spun out. So however you want to split right. that difference. They talk about her, and apparently Doc Brass knew her back in the 30s. And Snow knows her. And Snow apparently knows her, which is interesting because we just we have so little to go on in, with Snow, even though he's, he's apparently our central character. And there was uh, someone else they both knew. Now I can't remember. Well, and this whole idea of all the millennial babies knowing each other is... Right. 
Interesting. I and guess. then they're, they basically say it's kind of weird that you and I didn't know each other. Yes. And so throughout, we kind of get little senses about Doc Brass and his, his heroic adventures and something similar to the way Doc Savage was trained. I think Doc Savage was just trained by his father, but I'm not sure. Doc Brass comes from a special society stretching back to the French Revolution, and they kind of basically experimented on children, I think, to build the perfect human. Um, a new kind of diet, a new kind of learning system, a radically original exercise regime, and began to apply it to their own children. Each generation was stronger and stranger than the last. And then there's an odd comment, and that I'm the last of them. I've been bred, born, and trained to deal with anything except the unspeakable evil of my own parents, warped brother and sister that they were. That's just tossed off. Yeah. That is such a striking detail. I, I, I definitely hope we'll come back to that at some point. So apparently it was kind of a breeding program, and I guess they decide, sometimes you decide the brother and sister are going to give you the best breeding, perhaps. Perhaps that's it. Yeah, that felt more Garth Ennis than Warren Ellis, but yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, as far as I know, that is not what, uh, Win what he's telling Winter, that we are seeing these scraps of his pulp adventures. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if Winter's available, uh, uh, knowledgeable of it. Mm. And I'm, I'm guessing that they did not put that into Doc Savage novels. The little bit of Doc Savage novels that I've read, he's just perfect in every way. It's a little, like, it makes you appreciate comics since Stan Lee or something. <laughs> the heroes with, uh, with some uh, flaws because he's so flawless. Right, but it was very much of that time right it's this idea of this flawless hero going through these trials and right. tribulations but always coming out on top it was of a time and the pulps of that era were intended to be just pure fun right there wasn't supposed to be any any gray area when you read them right just the way steve dicko would have liked yes exactly maybe he read them as a kid i bet he did so they look at at uh, Jenny Sparks on the um, on the TV, and then they talk about someone named John Cumberland, who they both knew. I, my wild storm knowledge is not such that I know John Cumberland. Should I know him? Um, Have you heard that name before? No. And then they show someone who really looks like Captain Marvel. You were pointing out the Captain Marvel similarities in the previous issue, but I guess John Cumberland was a Captain Marvel type of. At least oh. he dressed like Captain Marvel. So John Cumberland is known as the High, and he looks like a Superman character. The High? H-I-G-H? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's weird. Yeah. It looks like he was a big character, but he wasn't in anything I read, so he's in a different part of Stormwatch or something. Huh. Or somewhere else in the Wildstorm universe. But there he is. Probably in the early days of Wildstorm, they were probably just tossing off superheroes you know a dime a dozen in those heady days where people were drawing any exciting superhero scene without putting too much thought into it so apparently he had all these adventures with this superman slash captain marvel looking character Whoa. 
Um, and and we're told that he came from a parallel Earth. So we get we're we're almost getting hammered in these two issues with the idea of multiple Earths. I feel right. Oops, and we get this really cool double page spread of Doc Brass fighting uh, spider people down underneath. It's a very it kind of reminds me of the movie Aliens. Um, it's a very creepy scene, and it says that. Uh, the feral, miscegenated neo-arachnid variants bred by the murder colonels. But apparently some of the things he was fighting were, what are they called? The demonoids or demonoid-related. Mm-hmm. Or demonites. Sorry, demonites. Yes. And demonites, you were mentioning before, are something from in one of our previous discussions. Yeah, that was the big wildcats thing. And it, let me find the picture so that we're both looking at the same thing. Uh, are any of those in this? There's an illustration with Doc Brass. I keep wanting to say that Doc Brass and a bunch of other characters fighting these lizard creatures. Yeah, um, demonite soldiers. Are are others of these Wildstorm characters here? Well, those are the characters that were introduced in the first issue of Planetary that were of the right. The group of pulp. You're right. Now that I'm looking more closely, the group of pulp characters that we saw in the first issue. We've got Hark and it's hard Thomas to, Edison and a bunch of others. It's hard to remember their names because they are clearly based on like the classic pulp heroes, like the spider and the spirit. Right. In fact, I think that one was called the spider. <clears throat> one of them looks like the spirit, but I think that's supposed to be uh, the secret agent. Mm-hmm. And one is a like a World War One fighter pilot. Right. It's a cool. It's a cool picture. I mean, another thing is. It, the pulp pictures, I really like the pulp pictures that he does, um, that Cassidy does. I keep gushing about Cassidy, I guess I should No, stop. it's perfectly earned. I mean, and, there, and there's another wild double page spread of all these people who've been kind of, I don't know, melded with the pavement or something. Well, And it talks about the charnel ship. I'm not sure if that relates to the bleed or something. And they say they cannot allow the world to be this way. And uh, Doc Brass talks about how he talks about uh, we couldn't allow things to continue like that. That was our blessed arrogance. And now look, 1999 and everyone's still here and the world didn't end for a lack of Axel Brass and his friends. And then Winter mentions a bunch of disasters that have happened, which I think are disasters from authority and other uh, Wildstorm comics. Mm-hmm. Like the center of Moscow was annihilated three months ago by Superman. Right. But they were stopped. Right. And somewhere in here, I don't know if I've already skipped over it. Oh, he says, the secret of the world, it's this. Save it and it'll repay you every second of every day. So he feels great having been a hero and saving the world. He's not, even though... He spent 50 years by himself guarding a gate and his legs are withered chunks. Mm -hmm. He seems to be very content with the role he's taken on. And Winter starts feeling more and more, I don't know, sad or glum or sorry for himself in the, as Doc Savage, um, Doc Brass talks about Mm -hmm. how wonderful it is. And basically Brass keeps talking about how great it was and then Snow basically shoves off but not being there by saying he was busy 
Yeah, he says, you know, you should have been with us in the 30s, Mr. Snow. I can't begin to tell you what you missed. And yet he says, I was busy, and he looks slumped over and depressed, and he's smoking a cigarette. And then they watch the sun set over the hill, which is reminiscent of the end of a lot of these issues, where they're looking over hills or over mountains, and sometimes the sun is setting or the sky is looking interesting or something. Right. So something is going on here with winter that at the moment, with this issue, we don't really know what it is. But he's obviously unhappy with how he chose to lead his life. Well, I'm not even sure how much of his own life he remembers. Yeah, and that's going to become a bigger part. So this is leading to that. I did, I did have that thought early on that in the first issue that he was kind of like a you know, when he threatened to kill Chiquita, that he was like a supervillain in hiding or something. I don't think that's what it turns out to be, but uh, it feels like a possibility still. Yeah, we'll see. So um, it's hard to put together what we've read in these two issues. <laughs> it, it's it, We're moving forward and... Uh, the feeling of things being more interconnected and being interconnected to a larger current world of Wildstorm has grown a bit here. Right. These two issues to me feel like a lot of place setting, like what's going to come later is going to be better for this having been done, but these issues themselves are not particularly compelling so much in their own right. Not to say that they're boring by any means or anything, but they are quieter more contemplative issues with less going on the this um this the good doctor issue is really just centered around a conversation and a conversation yeah. whose exact meaning we are yet to fully comprehend it fills in some of the blank spots on the doc brass character although we uh we kind of or i kind of feel like i know the doc brass character better than winter anyway because he's so closely based on a character that I've, I've read a little bit of about in prose and a lot of Doc Doc Savage comics in my youth. Well, and besides the Doc Savage comparison, which is apparent and upfront, whereas Snow doesn't have such a direct comparison, Brass has given a lot more of himself in two issues really than we've gotten from Snow for right, five. Right. Exactly. He feels, I think he feels kind of drawn to Brass, maybe because they're of the same generation, but uh, then is less happy with himself, I guess, in comparison to Brass. Right. I'm, I mean, I'm, I enjoyed them just having this conversation because I was curious about, I, I was glad that we get to follow up on Doc Brass, who, who was this striking figure in the first issue. But, but at the same time, as these are, uh, less complete in and of themselves issues. But I'm still enjoying going through all this kind of slowly, so I think we'll decide for the next episode whether to cover two or three more issues. If you're reading along, uh, which seems like a good idea since we're doing these so slowly, people should have plenty of time to to dig these up and read them. We will be reading at least issues six and seven and possibly eight. Yeah. Did you have, 
I, yeah, who, I assume we're both kind of ran out of thoughts on, on these particular issues. Yeah, I don't think that there's a lot of interjection or introspection like we had for the prior two, because these are very on their face, they're quieter, they're more introspective, and uh, I don't know, I they're, they're right. setting up a lot, and I'm curious to see where it goes next, but I don't think there's as much to necessarily say about that. In a way, these issues are even more on the shoulders of the artists to keep us visually interesting while we're just having a lot of conversations and being told bits of information that will be useful later. Um, We get the incredible, you know, interiors of that spaceship or, and then we get the really cool uh, John Cassidy version of pulp, pulp illustrations. And those illustrations are incredible. And that sepia tone, the way he molds to a different idea, it's just really cool. Yeah, I mean, an, another artist might have just made these illustrations kind of perfunctory and dull. Yeah, just incredible stuff. And then, like, he's going from that to, like, that landscape in that final page. And it's just an incredible amount of artwork outpouring. Yeah. and Yeah, it's like... <laughs> I feel almost weird how much I end up, or both of us end up praising Cassidy, but you definitely see how he became a star, (laughs) a star artist. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no question. It's incredible artwork, and the fact that he's churning it out at this point in his career is just something else. Okay, well, we, I think we're both having a lot of fun doing this planetary thingamabob, so we will... We will probably stay alive and come back still alive in a week or two. Holy crap. (laughs) There is no video. I never pressed the go live button. So hopefully our audio worked. (laughs) Right. <laughs>